The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Today on Radical Personal Finance, we talk lifestyle design with a guy who did pretty well in the corporate world, had a high-profile, high-status job, left that to launch a dream of entrepreneurship, which wound up failing, then went on to run for office, political office, and then he lost, wound up completely losing his shirt in that escapade, living in a garage with his in-laws, his wife, and new babies, and then decided that, hey, actually, this low-stress life, even though I don't have any money, is actually pretty cool. I like being with my family. So how can I put together income from a variety of sources – he now calls it patchwork income – in order to support myself? He's gone on to do exactly that over the last few years and work his way out of debt while traveling the world and adventuring with his family. It's well worth your time. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets. I'm your host. Thank you for being with me today. This is the show where we work hard to figure out ways to build, live, and enjoy a rich life today while also building a plan and following it, of course, and actually doing it, (laughs) building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. And today's interview perfectly encapsulates both of those points. My guest is Clark Van Deventer. He is author of the book Unworking. Uh, met Clark through a listener of the show who had introduced us via email and uh, reached out to him. It sounded like an interesting story, so I reached out to him for an interview, and he sent me a copy of his book, and the book really really touched me. Uh, it really somehow, I guess, just spoke to me in one of those ways that sometimes you read a book and it just speaks to you at a certain time. It's almost like you have a conversation with the author at the appropriate time. You may pick up a book today and it doesn't mean anything to you. You pick it up a year from now and it and it at that time means something to you. So I really enjoyed his book. And in this interview, you're going to get a chance to meet the man behind the book. He does have that that fascinating story that I shared with you right at the beginning. It's well worth your time. And I feel like this interview brings out both of those themes that are so important to me and and to this show going forward. Both of the themes meaning living a rich life today while also building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. How can we enjoy the meaningful life today, not sacrifice it all on the altar of tomorrow, but rather how can we have it today while also continually building for the future, and you'll hear in Clark's story exactly how he and his family are doing that. I also love interviewing people like this on the show who are doing it with family, with kids, uh, and I hope you find a lot of inspiration and encouragement in the episode today. Before I play it for you, sponsor of today's show is Paladin Registry. Paladin Registry is a financial advisor registry service. The way it works is this. You say, Josh, I want a good financial advisor. I say, okay, uh, 
okay, I'm going to try to give you some good information so you can know when you find one, but how do I actually tell you how to find one? <laughs> it's not easy. And so Paladin is my best solution that I've come up with, uh, at least so far, to answer that question, which is simply how can we find some people who can vet and research financial advisors in advance and search and say, let's weed out the good ones. Let's pull out some advisors who aren't doing such a great job and, and, and trash them and at least ha- get some applicants for you applying – they're applying for the job of being your financial advisor who are screened. Paladin Registry does just that. So if you're looking for a financial advisor, if you'd like to speak with somebody, uh, start your search at Paladin Registry. I don't promise that you're going to find your perfect advisor through them. I really don't. But I think it's at least a good place to start. And it'll help you to get some uh, multiple opinions and diverse opinions, and it'll help you to at least have a little more confidence that that advisor has been a little bit screened. Go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash Paladin, P-A-L-A-D-I-N. That will automatically flip you through to a landing page, uh, which you'll put in your information, you'll put in your name, your your phone number, uh, your address, uh, the amount of assets that you have, uh, things like that. And then Paladin will take that information. They'll match you up with a few advisors there in your local area, uh, as long as they have somebody there in your local area. And then you can they'll reach out to you and you can re- connect with them and interview them and see if they might be deserving of the job. That's up to you, but at least we can give you a good screening start starting point. Here's Clark. Clark, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me on. All right, here's the test. You wrote a book called Unworking, Exit the Rat Race, Live Like a Millionaire, and Be Happy Now. So <laughs> are you in the rat race? Are you living like a millionaire? And are you happy today as we record this? Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, certainly long out of the rat race. Um, living like a millionaire. Yes, I've been told uh, many times by people who are millionaires uh, that they want to have my life. And I sure am happy. I really am. Good, good. You, it's February 9, 2016 as we record this. Are you living your Lake Tahoe lifestyle at the moment? Uh, I sure am. Cool. Uh, we're, we've been here in Tahoe. We had uh, had a, a couple of years of what I call semi-nomadic living and um, had been in Tahoe last winter in a vacation rental, but this year have kind of settled back in and uh, gotten lots of days on the slopes so far this year. And after two summers, two consecutive summers away from Tahoe, I'm looking forward to being back here in the summer again this year too. Awesome. So I jumped into the middle of the story. Why don't you <laughs> start back and tell us the story of how you went from a fairly mainstream existence to a fairly non-mainstream existence with a special emphasis on how it relates to money. Sure. Well, um, five, five years ago, a little over five years ago, I guess six years ago now, um, my wife and I, we were, I guess you would say, um, living the dream <laughs> in some ways. Uh, I had a career with uh, upward trajectory and um, then I uh, mounted a campaign for Congress. Um, I, <clears throat> sorry, I actually didn't know at the time what a huge risk I was taking in running for Congress. The risk was not, um, uh, the risk was not so much cashing out my retirement <laughs> to run for Congress, cashed out my retirement so that I would have uh, money for my family to live off of to allow me to be a candidate uh, full time. That was not the risk. The risk was 
spending a year of my life without any irons in the fire. You know, uh, as someone who's been self-employed uh, for uh, over eight years, you constantly have to be working on your next thing. And I spent a year without working on my next thing. So when I uh, lost my election, not only was I out of money, but I didn't have anything that was next. And within two months of losing my campaign for Congress, I went from, I guess, a rising political star and candidate for Congress to moving my wife and then two kids into my in-laws garage. And we were just totally, not only broke, but just simply broken. And in that garage, the one thing I did have was time with my family. And I began thinking how, I, I don't want to give this up. You know, I, I don't want to give up all this time I have with my family, but I also need to figure out how to get us out of this garage eventually and how to get back on our feet financially. But I, I began to sense that the solution was not to go get a job. And so at that time, my wife and I um, really began to say, how can, how can we um, make the money that we need to make and want to make, um, but not give up what we've come to value um, in our family time. And uh, so at that point, we really began uh, building our patchwork of income. Uh, and it's really um, income streams that are designed around the life that we want to live instead of getting a job and then buying the best life possible with the money that I make. So the on Radical Personal Finance, we talk a lot about financial freedom and financial independence and specifically in trying to figure out ways to get out of the rat race. Uh, sure. One of those methodologies is doing what you're doing, unworking, unjobbing, basically putting together a, a, a series of different sources of income uh, that may – be different at different times of the year or just simply different um, smaller amounts of income that come from different sources in order to be able to sustain your living expenses. And it's one of the one of the four primary methodologies of, of escaping the rat race. Um, when I ask though, isn't this a whole lot more stressful? Because <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur and I'll tell you what, there are days that all I just want to do is go back and get a job. Yeah, <laughs> Don't well, you find this a lot more stressful than just working? It, yeah. Sometimes I do think it would be a lot easier. Um, until I think about what I'd be giving up. Um, and I will say that over time, when my wife and I really began working on our patchwork income approach, uh, we had lots and lots of small patches. And uh, there was a couple of years ago where we said, you know what, let's, let's simplify this a little bit. Let's try to grow these two patches a little bit more and focus more of our income here and have have maybe three or four medium-sized things instead of 12 small things because that's a lot easier to manage. Um, but for me, one of the big things actually goes back to the garage. I remember there was, there was a really low point. And sure, my wife and I had been talking about trying to really design a different kind of life. But still, I was I, I struggled with you know, waves of depression in the garage, just thinking, what the heck happened to my life? You know, and in one week I got three phone calls from three, uh, it was three really exciting job opportunities. Um, uh, just really interesting, cool opportunities. And my mind went to work about how each of these, Oh, it'd be so cool to take this one or this one would be good. Or that, you know, they were all interesting. And then I still don't know why, but all three of those opportunities just like, just 
disappeared. You know, I tried to call them. They wouldn't call me back. I, I don't know what happened. But I remember thinking at that time, like, wow. Like, it was a real wake-up call because I realized that it, if I had taken any one of those jobs, that my life uh, and my well-being was going to be in someone else's hands. And I really, I wanted to turn the tables. I wanted to be in charge of my own life and not be dependent on a job. And, you know, a lot of times as my wife and I have built up this patchwork income, it, I think there's this false uh, notion that we are like living on the edge and it's risky. You know, what we're doing is entrepreneurs and living differently. And somehow this idea of getting a job is the secure, safe path. But I, to me, that is completely backwards. If I have a job and I'm dependent on one income stream, my job, for my family's well-being, well, I could lose that job tomorrow. But with patchwork income and having multiple income streams, let's say something happened. One of my larger patches, I'm a, a consultant to nonprofit organizations um, and major gifts fundraising. It goes back to my background uh, prior to running for Congress. Well, if something happened and I lost, I, I lost all my clients and all of a sudden that money was gone, even if that happened, we wouldn't be destitute because we have other income streams that we can rely on. It would maybe get tight for a while, but we could rely on those other income streams while we work to build up new ones or rebuild old ones. Um, the idea is if diversification is such a good idea for retirement investing, why isn't diver diversification uh, for income throughout all of life a good idea? Um, I think it is. When you went from having, let me rephrase the question differently. In your book, you talk about, um, in a place you talk about that you had this prestigious job working for the Reagan Ranch. You were hobnobbing with the politicians and <laughs> and you know doing the doing the whole high consumption, high status yeah, lifestyle yeah. job. Uh, and you had that status in your community, and you had the status when you traveled, and and you know, Mister Mister Important. And <laughs> then you quit that job with the goal of buying a cafe. And you mm. write a paragraph in your book that says this: "I felt I had to quit because my passion for the job just wasn't there anymore. Sticking around just to collect a paycheck twice a month didn't seem right. I became convinced that if I stayed, I would become a shell of a man." Do you? This is a very um, so I'm in your same generation, and I haven't told you my story, but in many ways I've I've followed a similar path. Um, and the note I wrote in my book uh, next to that paragraph was I said this is a very millennial attitude. This idea mm -hmm. of, of we're just going to go out and and if I'm if I'm not passionate for the job, uh, I'm not going to stick to it. Um, did you struggle a little? I mean, did you struggle with the idea of of doing something for the sake of doing it? Do you feel like everything has to be around this, this sense of passion that if I somehow don't have a passion for it, that I have to do it? What, what, what role does character and what role does just simply fulfilling family responsibilities play in your thinking? Um, it's uh, secondary. <laughs> so while financial considerations came up as I prepared to leave my job, it was secondary to, am I doing what I'm su supposed to be doing with my life? 
um, the night before I quit my job at the Reagan Ranch, um, my wife and I were talking. My boss was flying in from Washington, D.C. the next day, and I was going to have dinner with him that night to let him know my decision. And my wife um, and I are talking, and I say, I, I don't know. You know, should I, should I do this? Should I go through with this? And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, what if we can't make the money? And she said, um, if it's the money, quit. She said, if there's other reasons you're thinking about staying, you should stay and sort through those. But if it's just the money, you should quit. Um, and that was obviously a, a huge and powerful moment for me. But I think that the world collectively is poorer than it should be because people have settled uh, for less than uh, work that they love or work that they're called to or work that they're passionate about. And I think that if more of us um, chose to actually uh, pursue life calling, pursue um, you know the things that we're most passionate about, I think the world would just be collectively so much richer. Um, and so there's, I, I think for me, there's a, a faith aspect, you know, in terms of uh, really feeling for me at that time that God was leading me in a certain direction that, um, uh, you know, I don't mean to go super spiritual, but I, I really felt like God wanted me to leave. Um, I had written in my journal uh, months earlier that um, I wrote that I had this um, increasing um, belief that I wasn't where I was supposed to be. And I can't imagine going back and reading that now and still being in the same place. Like I just sucked it up and continued to trudge along through life. Um, and even when I, I was going, I was leaving my job to buy the cafe that didn't work. Um, this was right at the beginning of the financial meltdown, uh, the great recession. And I think a friend, a, a good friend who worked in finance, who I think understood knew before I did that, um, the cafe deal was not going to come together. He called me a couple of days before I quit my job and he said, Clark, here's a, here's a deal. Let's just say that the, the cafe is not going to work out. Would you uh, still quit? And my answer was yes, because I really had this sense that, um, I, I needed to move on. I needed to do something different and yeah, just trudging along and, and, um, putting my nose to the grindstone and uh, all those uh, analogies you could use. It just, I felt like I was going to be a shell of a man if I just kept doing that. It's interesting. Now I think sometimes it can be a useful exercise to go through and say, what are you like, which bad option are you, are you um, not okay with? Uh, with my personal story, I closed a, a successful financial planning practice in order to start radical personal finance. And when I did that, I did it, uh, I had, I had thought it through and I had a lot of reasons, but ultimately the question that swayed me was this question. Would I rather try it, take this leap, make this decision that doesn't seem to be the <laughs> thoughtful, careful one, would I rather try it, fail, lose everything and start again? Uh, <laughs> Or would I rather not try it, continue doing what I'm doing now, and then always wonder what if? Uh, right. I came to the position where I feared the regret of not trying it more than I feared the pain of potential failure. 
that's such a great way of putting it. Um, and the thing is, is, is having gone through the experience and actually having lost everything, um, for me, the conclusion is, well, geez, losing everything wasn't that bad. Um, now, sure, there were dark moments along the way, but uh, for me, the beauty of having um, risked it all in one turn of pitch and toss <laughs> is um, I, because I, I failed um, and have come through, I have, in a sense, been freed from the fear of failure. So uh, because, because I've lost everything and losing everything wasn't that bad, I feel this um, freedom in life to take risks and to go for it um, that I, I, I don't think I could have ever experienced if I hadn't, uh, as you so well put it, realized that um, I would, yeah, the, I, I would rather uh, try and fail than to have not tried at all. What was the most difficult part of financial failure for you? Um, shame. Um, the, you know, really feeling like I wasn't who, um, I had, um, told people I was, or people had come to think of who I was. Um, and as I talk about in my book, I really retreated from a lot of relationships. Um, many people did not know many, many very good friends who, who had been friends for a long time, didn't know that I had lived in my in-laws garage until well after we had moved out. Uh, and I had begun blogging at familytrek.org and published a blog post about what had happened. And people were like, I had no idea. Um, because I really just, I retreated and, um, that was really hard. You talk, uh, in the book about the impact of money on being able to build the life of your dreams. Um, and, uh, and I, by the way, I asked you a bunch of antagonistic questions, but I really have loved the book. <laughs> I don't uh, feel like, like to me they're not antagonistic. Uh, I get these questions like all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to ask questions, uh, difficult ones that I, I think listeners, uh, are, many listeners are probably thinking. But about 65% of the way through the book, and I found myself highlighting uh, extensive passages. And uh, I really resonated in many ways with your story because it expresses a lot of the, the lessons that I've learned more than probably anybody else or more than many other books. I, I just I guess it resonated with your personal path. Uh, but you made a, a, co- a comment in here that I, that I underlined and highlighted and said, and it's this, most people get the highest paying job possible and then figure out how to arrange their lives around that job. They get a job and then buy a life commensurate to their income level. To these people, one's lifestyle is determined by how much money they have. I suggest that you not arrange your life around a job, but that you arrange a life, but that you arrange your life around what you value most. Get a job that fits your life, not a life that fits your job. Why is this such a countercultural message? <laughs> um, gosh, that's a really good question. Um, it's just not the way we've been taught. And um, I, I do think there's a change that's slowly developing. Uh, if you go back to our grandparents, our grandparents, if they got a job, it was assumed that they would have that job forever. And 
um, the, the employers took care of the employees. So oftentimes, if they, there was a new baby in the family, the person would get a raise. Um, and that was, that was normal. Um, if you go to our parents' generation, our parents went to work assuming that they would uh, work there forever. And then when that didn't happen, there was a bitterness that grew. Um, and, and I think, I think in our parents' generation in terms of like, they had this assumption that they were going to work for this company forever and be taken care of, but the employers had n- no longer viewed, um, employees as family. Uh, they were really, um, renting employees, not bringing on family. Um, I think what's happening now with the, <laughs> I hate the word millennial, um, and uh, I'm a little, I think too old to be a millennial actually, but I think what's happening now is that em- employee employees have turned the table, um, and they're now renting jobs. So it's actually a quite fair and even relationship. Um, employers bring employees on without any expectation that they'll be there forever. Employees take a job without any expectation that they'll be there forever. Um, and you, I think you're seeing a lot of people come and go from jobs a lot more quickly because of that. Um, but this way of thinking in terms of, uh, um, lifestyle over money is just not what our, our parents' generation thought. It was put your head down until you're 65 and you've saved enough money, <laughs> you right. know? Right. Um, and, and the sad thing is, is that, that uh, that generation is turning 65 now and all the things that they thought they were working towards their entire life, they're not there. Um, they don't have the financial security they thought they would have. Um, and of, of course there's no guarantees that we'll even get there. Um, you know, as I talk about in my book, there was a, um, example. I met with a man who, who I'd known for a number of years and it was his wife had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And he said to me, um, you know, Clark, I wish I had just retired two years earlier, you know, so I, I could have had those two years with her before the disease started to take her away. And I just remember thinking at the time, like two years, are you kidding me? Like, I wish I'd lived my whole life differently. So, you know, put aside the financial, um, uh, issues. E- there's no guarantee that even if even if we were a- we managed to just do the right thing, the dutiful thing, and work all of our life and save all this money, we that could all happen. And, and then you know your spouse could get a terrible a disease, or or you you could not make it yourself. And so it just seems like a a backwards way of thinking to me. Um, but I, I think that, that things are, are changing, that this um, the younger generation is uh, beginning to put priorities on some different things. It's definitely a, a, a major change. I, I've wondered a lot about the influences and reasons why. <laughs> Maybe it's just yeah. that our parents probably raised this saying, you can do whatever you want to do. You can be who you want to be. <laughs> and some of us... Um, I don't know why some of us believe them. <laughs> and then we look around and say, wait a second, I'm not doing what I want to do and I'm not being who I want to be. <laughs> so let me make some changes. Uh, well, and I think, I think also, um, it is like your, my parents, I think, for example, um, they, they just think I'm, I'm crazy, you know? 
And they, I think, wish that I were still um, a big, important person, you know. And um, it's like, well, uh, my definition, by my definition of success, I'm uh, as or more successful than I was when I had the big job because I have uh, achieved relative success. I'm not where I want to be. I've achieved relative success, though, on a path that I've chosen to go down. And I think it's, it's difficult, um, you know, for like my parents to, cause they want to be able to be proud and say, well, my son is the deputy director of the Reagan ranch, you know, and, and, uh, that sounds like, like a really important job, but, um, you know, they don't know what to say about me now. It's like, well, uh, he's living in Tahoe and he skis and, you know, it's just, okay, what's his job? Well, I, I don't even know what his job is really, you know, <laughs> you know, um, they're, I think they're looking for something to hang their hat on where I'm uh, quite content to to ski and take off to Thailand for three months. I think the so, the, so, the social ties and the social influences are definitely one of the biggest things that keeps people from pursuing alternative um, paths of life. Uh, I, I've gone through, I guess, three major like social transitions. Number one um, – in terms of the prestige of your job. When I graduated from college, I was working at a uh, market research company and I was I was basically a low and mid no lower mid-level entry level analyst, but based upon the title of my uh, my job pos- position and based upon the projects that I was working on, I could certainly spin my job to sound very impressive. Um, <laughs> because we worked with a lot of Fortune 500 clients, and I was always working on some interesting work in the marketing space, and it would seem very, very impressive to somebody from the outside. Uh-huh. But in the but the reality of it was was I was thankful to have the work, I was thankful to have the employment, um, but the day to day functioning of it was not a good fit for me. Pouring through Excel spreadsheets, uh, pulling out marketing insights from based upon the response of consumers didn't necessarily fit my idea of a great life but right. it sounded prestigious uh, it sounded impressive and i would go on business trips and fly into places and you fly in and you get the little black car from the the executive shuttle service and you feel like a big shot on some of those mm-hmm. things well, i went from that to selling life insurance which life insurance sales is probably <laughs> life insurance and my buddies in the car sales business is one of the least prestigious jobs ever <laughs> but the reality of the lifestyle is far better in yeah. terms of I've got total flexibility of time, massive income potential, the ability mm-hmm. to do work that I cared about. And so socially, though, it's not an acceptable social change. But the reality is it was a much better change. Well, built that up and then I you know, moved into the investments business and then I, I had all these letters behind my name and I had all the social prestige back again. I wasn't just the lowly life insurance salesperson. Uh, and then I closed that <laughs> to go out and do, and do this, this weird internet thing. Uh, but I'll tell you, when it comes down to having a clear vision for your life, I'm living the best lifestyle I've ever lived. But it's but I had to but I walked away from the BMWs and the Mercedes right. and all of my other financial advisors who said, Joshua, what on earth are you doing? And I was always kind of the odd duck. But to me, those things, those external factors, were not um, were not important to me. What I wanted to do was to have my day go through. I wanted to go through my day with the with based upon my own vision of how a day should run, not based upon what I needed to do to impress other people. Uh, but I tell you, it's hard. And there are still times where uh, that those social pressures still 
press in on you. And the, the, the social pressures are the biggest challenges that we face. Yeah, and I think one important thing to clarify here, though, is that, at least for me, um, one thing I talk about in my book is, look, I'm not saying live like me. I'm not saying if you drive a BMW and uh, you have, you know, all the expensive toys and all. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying that most people have never thought about what they really want. They're not actually living by design. They're just following the crowd. And um, I think the important thing is to step back and go, you know, does my life really line up with the things that I say that I value most? Uh, One exercise I have in the book, a very practical one, is, you know, I make a list of the four or five things in your life that you say are most important to you. And then look at your budget. If the top four or five things that you say are most valuable to you don't show up as the top line items in your budget, that means that you're spending your life energy, you know, because all, all, all that money we make, we've just traded our time to get. So if, you're, if the top items in your budget don't line up with the things that you say you value most, it means you're spending your life energy on things that ultimately don't matter to you. Um, and then another way of looking at it for me is if my goal is to ski 50 days a year and to be able to travel extensively, um, it, it doesn't matter how much money you're going to pay me. Um, if you would you want to pay me half a million dollars a year, a million dollars a year, but I have to move to Washington DC and I have to work, you know, 50 weeks a year and be on call and, you know, work 12 hour days. Like, it doesn't matter how much money you're going to pay me, that money doesn't help me achieve what I want in life. Um, and so going back to the quote that you read from my book earlier about how most people just get the highest paying job possible and uh, then buy a life um, with that money, no, that's, that's not what we should be doing. We should be saying, what do I want in life? What do I want life, what do I want life to look like? Okay, now, now that I've figured that out, uh, now I'll figure out how to make the money I need to have that kind of life. I got to ask, and this is one of my biggest questions throughout the book. <laughs> You're describing uh, a lifestyle that doesn't necessarily cost very much. How on earth do you afford to buy lift tickets to ski 60 days a year? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, one of the great secrets of the ski industry is that buying season passes is not expensive. Um, so a season pass to, um, well, like a Tahoe uh, epic pass. So it gives you, uh, access to three, uh, incredible mountains, heavenly North star and Kirkwood. You're looking at 10,000 acres of skiable terrain. Um, and you can get that depending on the blackout days that you want, uh, for $450, $475. So let's just say it's $500. Well, if I'm skiing 50 days a year, that's $10 a day. Um, now, uh, I always feel sorry for the people who show up and want to buy a single-day lift ticket. And Single-day lift tickets are $119 or something. But, uh, yeah, it's a lot cheaper to live in the mountains than it is to visit them. <laughs> in your book, you talk about the three tenets that you and your wife developed uh, that fit your financial vision, which are, number one, get out of debt. Number two, keep our expenses low. And number three, only take on work that is location-independent. Where did those come from and why are they so key to you fulfilling your vision for your life? Uh, well, first, get out of debt. 
um, uh, I, I know that, you know, we're in tandem on this one. You know, it's, it's an anchor, something that's holding you back. Uh, if you have debt, you're paying for um, either yesterday's visions or yesterday's mistakes, you know, and um, getting out of debt was um, a big priority for us. Uh, I'll confess we're not there yet. We still have student loan debt. Um, but getting out of debt uh, was and continues to be a big priority for us. Um, second, keeping our expenses low, it, it just allows us to be nimble. Uh, when I was, um, as you said, um, I can't remember how you phrase it exactly, like high income, high expense, um, when I was at the Reagan Ranch, my monthly, the nut that I had to crack just to pay the mortgage, um, utilities, insurance, you know, the the basic things, um, it was $10,000. I had to bring in $10,000 every month uh, before I could even think about going out for coffee, <laughs> you know. And I was, this wasn't nimble. Now by having our expenses low, um, uh, you know, much more nimble and um, can turn on a dime in a way that I never could have when our expenses were high. Um, and then third location independent, we just, we, uh, love to travel. Um, we love being in Lake Tahoe now, but, um, you know, over the past couple of years, we've taken two, uh, six week long trips to Central America. We did, um, a two month cross country road trip. We spent three months in Thailand. Um, and these are life experiences that just mean a lot to us. It's one thing that we value, and if we took on work that was not location independent, we would have to give up those things. Um, and because travel um, and seeing the world is a priority for us, um, this was one more thing that we had to, to put into our kind of, you know, the, the work we take on has to fit within these things. Uh, some people may not care about travel, so uh, they wouldn't have to have that, you know, as one of their tenants for income. Wouldn't it make more sense? Uh, you said you still have student loans and you went from a place of being totally broke and, and in debt. Wouldn't it have made a lot more sense for you to have used the connections and the status and the, the reputation that you developed um, to get a job as a consultant, uh, earn a lot of money for a few years, uh, pay off your debt, save a lot of money and have a, a greater financial cushion underneath than rather than to try to put together this patchwork income? Wouldn't that make more sense? No. <laughs> Why not? Because for two reasons. Number one, um, I don't know. And this may sound fatalistic or it may sound dramatic, but number one, I don't, I don't know that I have tomorrow. I, I, you know, and I talk in the book about um, an experience my wife and I had actually on our first date um, where, you know, we very likely could have died. Um, so maybe that's dramatic, but the, the, the other point is, is that my, my son is eight now. My three-year-old son is gone forever. He'll never be back. And I can never get these years with my kids back. Um, so I have in some ways chosen, I, I, I thought I'd, what I really came to was I would rather um, work less in these years when my kids are young. And actually maybe work a little bit more when they're 15 or 20 years old and, and um, less dependent on me. 
Now, maybe the older version of Clark will regret that decision. <laughs> it's possible. But uh, I, I just have this, um, real, I had this realization that my, the, the years that my kids were young were fleeting. And I didn't want to be absent those years. I wanted to be present. It was a big thing that hung over me in the, when we lived in the garage. My son at the time was uh, three and my daughter was six months. And um, every, she slept in a crib um, a few feet away from us. And I remember every morning she'd wake up and start, she'd be stirring and, and uh, kind of trying to get my attention. And every morning when I put my feet on the floor, she would clap because I was getting up. And I remember thinking, you know, I have no, I have no money and I live in my in-laws garage, but, but my daughter still claps for me when I get out of bed. And I, during that time with them, I just realized like, if I go back to the grind, if I just go make money, I'm going to miss this. And to me, it wasn't, wasn't worth missing. How did you deal with that? Uh, within the context of your relationship with your wife, uh, I know for a lot of husbands, that's a, uh, a major challenge to say, you know, I need to support my family. And um, frankly, I, if I were living in a garage with my in-laws, I'd feel a little bit selfish about the idea of me chasing my dreams when <laughs> at the end of the day, I didn't, I, I didn't sign up just to live a life that was just focused on me. When I, uh, when I married, I, uh, I became one with my wife and that means that it's no longer me, it's we. And so I've got to make sure that, uh, that I'm taking care of the commitments that I've made and me living out my dreams is not the most important commitment. How did you deal with that in your relationship with your wife? Well, for us, it was almost the opposite in the sense that, well, when I was ready to take a job in the garage, my wife wasn't. Um, I think she understood before I did that for us to build the kind of life that we really wanted to have, uh, the solution was for me to not get a job. Um, and I've always said that the great gift my in-laws gave me, uh, it was not um, the garage. It was not just a roof over our family's head. Uh, the great gift they gave me was time. Um, because I was able to, we were able to live with them um, for, we lived in the garage for six months and then spent another um, three or four months uh, in a, a cabin in Lake Tahoe that my wife's grandfather owned rent free. Those, th- that time that we had, if I didn't have the family connections, I would have been forced to take anything. Um, but because I had family supporting me, we were able to not just be desperate, but to build by design. And I, I think th- this is actually a topic I, I want to take on um, uh, in a second book. That I, I think there's something uh, to be said for these these family connections um, in terms of supporting one another and, um, and and empowering other people in our family to be there. I, I looking back at the time, moving in with my in laws was such a shameful thing, and now I'm like it was awesome. You know, and I think about my kids having lived with grandma and grandpa, what a rich time that was for them. And we still go back and spend because we're location independent. We still go back and spend a couple of weeks or a month at a time uh, with uh, the in-laws. 
And I think there's, um, I, I think we really need to do away with this, this idea that it's shameful that we go back and live with um, your in-laws. If you could live with your in-laws and use that time to build something uh, meaningful and lasting, that shouldn't be a shameful thing. Um, and my wife really was on board with that idea before I was. Um, I think it was much harder for me living there than it was for her. Um, and that may make sense in some ways. But um, she's always been, you know, right along with me in terms of this um, lifestyle design. And I've never, there's never been this, uh, like I'm dragging her down this path or or whatever. And, and my wife and I really are partners. And whether it's our ideas about Pat's work income or living location independently or ideas about how we're raising our children or uh, school choices we've made. Sometimes people ask us like, well, who had the idea first? And my wife and I have no idea who had the idea first. Um, you know, these are our decisions that we arrive at very slowly and we do it together by living a shared life. Um, and lots of, uh, lots of wine <laughs> and the good, sense that good, we're good sitting, releases the tongue sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I can't tell you how many long, 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 long talks we've had never in a, like, it's never been like, in, in, you know, any animosity. It's just like, we're constantly talking about what we want. And by talking together, um, we've, we've continued to remain close and, really of one mind despite radical changes in our life since we were married. What do you actually do to earn income to support your family now? Uh, we have a few, uh, our, our few patches. Uh, one, and really our biggest patch, is that I'm a consultant to uh, nonprofit organizations and um, major gifts fundraising. So a lot of my work, actually, I do Skype calls with um, fundraisers for these organizations where I'm coaching them and working you know, through these issues with them. Um, and then I do travel to, um, to meet with these groups and things like that. So in that sense, um, uh, maybe I'm not entirely location independent. And then I have to jump on a plane to be somewhere occasionally, but um, it's never been... Uh, an issue for us. So I'll fly to Washington, D.C. and spend a week in Washington, D.C. or something. Um, we're also um, credit card processing reps. Um, so we have a company that we work with that, um, you know, provide the, all those terminals that you see at your favorite restaurant and coffee shop or whatever. Uh, if you go in to buy, uh, buy lunch at a restaurant here in Lake Tahoe and you charge $30, my wife and I will make maybe 50 cents on that transaction. But uh, we do that a lot. It's a numbers game in terms of having volume, volume as you know, with your background. Um, but that is great income for us because it's both it's passive and residual. Um, we did a lot of work up front to build up that income base and now uh, do very little work, maybe a few hours a month. Um, and then that money just keeps rolling in. And then we have some smaller patches that we are developing. Uh, we have a website called TahoeSkiBum.com, uh, which is all about, um, as it's, you would probably imagine, skiing and riding. Lake Tahoe, we built a pretty big audience. We're working to um, 
monetize the site. It's a very small patch right now, but one that we uh, think will be bigger. Uh, and my wife also um, designs websites, does business consulting, um, d- does mobile apps, lots of little things sort of around e-commerce and the web. So those are our patches as they are right now. Um, and then there's lots of smaller ones, freelance writing that I do um, and other things. But those are the big ones. How do you fit your kids into a location-independent lifestyle? Um, well, they come with us. <laughs> um, they, they've been, for us, our bases really are Santa Barbara and Lake Tahoe. That's where their friends are. Those are the places we keep coming back to. Um, and it's great to have been on the road for three months and to come home and immediately fall back into the same friendships and the same routines that we were in just before. Um, our kids have been traveling really like since they were born. Uh, so for them, this is largely normal. Um, at the end, gosh, this would have been uh, March of, uh, what would have been March of 14 was when we moved out of our long-term lease that we'd had in uh, Lake Tahoe, put all of our stuff in storage and began traveling um, for what ended up being a couple of years. And it was kind of interesting how that worked out. Um, really all of us at the same time, um, me, my wife and our kids were all like craving being off the road uh, and to kind of push pause and travel and to come back to Tahoe and settle in for a while. Um, and I think that was um you know, important to the kids, but it was important to us. It was kind of interesting how we all arrived at that point together. But our kids love to travel. Um, I think they'd love to be at grandma's house more. But, um, you know, it's interesting with them too, the sense of pride that they have when they talk to people about where they've been. Um, you know, if you think about it, when you're six years old and you tell someone, well, I've been to Thailand, it's on the other side of the world, and the reaction they get from grown-ups is like, wow, you've been to Thailand. Like, what does that do for my daughter's self-esteem? Um, that that's the way people react, you know, to her when she says, like, you know, yeah, and I've been to Guatemala and I've been to Panama and, you know, all these other places. Uh, the reactions that she gets um, are interesting. How do you handle their education on the road? Um, well, we're, um, we've always homeschooled our kids. Um, or I don't even, I don't like the term homeschool. Like, um, uh, it's, it's funny, like when, when my kids were born, you should have seen them. They, they didn't know anything. They didn't know how to talk. <laughs> you know, they pooped their pants, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, so we've been homeschooling them, if you will, or educating them from the day they were born. Uh, that's just continued as they've reached, you know, school age. Um, we're, um, we call it hack schooling, what we do. Um, there's a unschooling movement that we've been heavily influenced by. Um, but we also bring in sort of um, more traditional schooling elements into our um, education with our kids. But we're, it's very organic. Um, kind of what you said earlier, like, wouldn't it be easier to just go get a job? Uh, sometimes I feel that way about school. Um, so take um, okay, this experience we had in Bangkok, where when we were in Bangkok, we couldn't get on 
the BTS SkyTrain, their metro that goes all around the city, until a few things happened. We, the kids had to read the map and figure out where we were. And at the time, the kids are uh, six and four. Uh, and then we had our, our inf- uh, baby with us, but we didn't require this of her. Uh, but the six and four year old, before we could get on the train, they had to figure out where we were, where we were going, how much money it would cost, multiply that by four, go take our, our cash money to the attendant, get the, get the coins, um, and get the, you know, then get the tickets that we needed. So a process that could have taken me, uh, all of 30 seconds would take us as a family 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or 20 minutes, you know, and it's like, it would have been so much easier to put my kids in school and not worry about this like moment at the BTS SkyTrain in Bangkok. But look at what my kids did there. They read maps. Um, they did math. They had to, uh, work with someone, the, the attendant to accomplish their goals. And so this has sort of been our approach to education over the years. Um, and it's, it's, um, incredibly fulfilling and completely exhausting. Um, so even like I say, I don't like the term homeschool because it implies that we do school at home, which we don't. Um, yeah, in some ways, I think it would be easier if we just sat down every day and did school at home from, you know, 10 to 2 or whatever. But no, it's like uh, for us, education is every moment of every day um, and it can be exhausting. Having said all that, now that we're back in Tahoe, my daughter really wanted to go to kindergarten. So she's actually enrolled in kindergarten now, but, um, my eight year old son and, uh, and my almost three year old daughter now just continue to go through life with us. Do you have thoughts on whether and how, uh, they will uh, pursue perhaps a similar career strategy to you? And what I mean is there's lots of people who make very, you know, very cutting edge decisions for themselves and say, I'm, I'm not going to go with the, the, the status quo. I'm going to go ahead and, and blaze a different path. But then many of those same people will hold before their children uh, the same normal uh, cultural norms. Uh, you need to make sure that you have a good education, you need to make sure that you have a good job, et cetera. Do you have some ideas or thoughts or yeah, hopes it's, it's, for their future in terms of, of avoiding that? It's kind of funny. Like, um, all the things that I've kind of like, ah, doesn't really matter. You know, like those are probably going to be probably going to be the things that my kids like build their lives around because they th- they'll, they'll think that I didn't put enough emphasis <laughs> on them. Um, but you know, I think for us, the key is, is just trying to keep options open for the kids and educate them on, uh, some of the pluses and minuses of, of different, you know, lifestyle choices, um, or how they choose to design their life. Um, one of my goals for my kids, um, is that by the time they're, they're reaching adulthood, um, 17, 18, 19, whatever that is, um, one of my goals for the kid, for each of my kids is to have helped them and taught them, uh, how to make a thousand dollars a month, um, in a semi, semi passive residual way, basically make a thousand dollars a month online. Um, I feel like if I can do that, if you're 18 years old and you're making a thousand dollars a month in online income and you figured that figured out that, um, that opens a lot of doors for you. Um, and first of all, if you're, if they wanted to travel and you're single and you're 18, you could probably travel forever on a thousand dollars a month. Um, 
Or maybe they say, well, gosh, if I figured out how to make $1,000 a month, maybe I could make $2,000 a month. Um, so that's, that's one goal that we have with the kids. Um, but, you know, what kind of life are they going to have? I mean, if, if my kids become doctors or, or uh, lawyers, these are, you know, much more, you know, high-stress um, jobs and high-stress careers than uh, we have now. Uh, all we can do is, you know, try to lead them and raise them right and get them to think about these kinds of questions. And, you know, they can make their own choices in terms of, you know, what they what they want their life to look like and what they feel called to do. With a patchwork income, sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. Have you put in any place, uh, any strategies that have helped you to uh, – avoid or limit the amount of credit card debt that you get into uh, when income is low? Um, we, uh, no, um, we don't have credit card debt. Uh, and I think in part because I was just a decision to not have credit card debt. <laughs> and so uh, for us, it was always like, we've got to make more money. What, what am I going to do? Like I've got to, um, I've got to make some calls. I've got to book another consulting gig. I've got to get a freelance writing gig uh, because we need more money than we have right now. So I've got to, I've got to go find it. Um, it was never really an option um, to, you know, rack up credit card debt. Um, and I think that uh, it goes back to my first tenant, you know, get out of debt. Um, so last thing I want is, is new debt, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I think it's, it really is, you know, you have to discipline yourself or you have to give some things up. Well, it goes back to this, uh, the second tenant as well, having, having fewer expenses. Um, so the money you, you have to bring in this month that you're obligated to bring in uh, is just a lower number. Um, so uh, it's tough. It's worked out for us um, over time. We've never been in a situation really where we, you know, we had to rack up credit card debt to buy groceries for our family. We always were able to go out and find one more thing. Last question, Clark. Um, it's easy for, let me not say it's easy. <laughs> um, if I were listening to this interview, one of the questions I would be having would be thinking, oh, it's easy for somebody who's been to the heights of prestige prestige and success made a lot of you know made a lot of money made six figures as a income lived in a fancy house worked with fancy people it's easy for that person to say well you know listen being broke is not such a bad thing uh but what about me you know maybe i'm i've never made a lot of money maybe i've always been broke maybe i my family um, comes from uh, a very poor disadvantaged part of society or part of the world uh do your does your philosophy fit that type of person? Do you have lessons that you'd like that kind of person to consider, or is your philosophy only for those who've um, been privileged enough to reach the pinnacles of success and then realize well it's not always cracked up to be so I'm yeah. going to design my life differently? Well, remember when we really started rebuilding, um, I was in a shameful position. You know, I, I mean, really only by my own standards. Um, I retreated from all past relationships. So when we began rebuilding our life, 
we weren't rebuilding our life with old connections. You know, we were, um, we were doing it ourselves. Uh, can't everyone do it? You know, I'm asked that question a lot. And my answer to that question is, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know if everyone can do it. <clears throat> the question isn't, can everyone do it? The question is, can you do it? You know, do you believe that you have it in you? And if, I, I think that if you're listening to a podcast like this, chances are you do have it in you. And, you know, when we started out, when we moved out of uh, the garage and moved up to Tahoe, we made $217 that month. It was what our patchwork of income brought in. And slowly but surely, we continued to build it up. Um, can everyone do it? I don't know. I'm not willing to say everyone can do it. But that's, that's really not the question. The question is, can you do it? And I think that if uh, we begin to, to say we can and we begin to try to live epically today um, and to make the most of every day, um, I do think that um, uh, we, we, you, know, you will see that a life of your own design uh, isn't something that's reserved for a few lucky or a few special people. Um, can everyone do it? I don't know, but I believe that it's possible for far more people than who are currently achieving it. Clark, thanks for coming on the show. Um, tell us about all your websites, uh, where people can buy the book. Uh, give us all of your addresses. <laughs> sure. Well, you, uh, you can go to unworkingbook.com. Uh, you could buy the book there at unworkingbook.com, but you can also read detailed chapter descriptions, the um, introduction, the prologue. Actually, the book starts out with a letter to my children. and um, So unworkingbook.com. And then I blog uh, haphazardly on uh, family travel and uh, lifestyle design at uh, familytrek.org. And then, um, gosh, I'm on Twitter, at Clark Vand. Um, and... Uh, I'm around the interwebs, but go to familytrek.org or unworkingbook.com. You can find me. My challenge for you today as we go is to ask you, how can you take some of the lessons from Clark's story and apply them to yourself? Can you build a little bit of patchwork income? Can you lower some expenses? Can you eliminate some debt? How can you take some of the good things from his experience and then just put them in your own situation? You don't have to live his lifestyle. I don't want to live his lifestyle. I'm not really that into skiing. Um, I don't want to move to Lake Tahoe. But I can learn from it. And then I can apply it in my own life. And that's really what we've got to do is continually learn from these things and apply them in our own lives. I hope this has been useful. You may check out uh, Clark's book on working. I really enjoyed it. Uh, probably the most useful thing about well, I really enjoyed the stories uh, in the book. Uh, probably the most useful thing about it, though, he's got a bunch of great journaling uh, prompts in that book. A lot of great journaling prompts. In fact, uh, it's probably worth the price of admission just for those alone. Um, frankly, it's, that's, that's, uh, that's my opinion on it. So check it out, Unworking. Link in the show notes for today's note, uh, for today's show. Uh, check out his blog. All that stuff will be linked up in the show notes. Thank you all so much for listening to today. If you would like to continue supporting the show, uh, please support the show at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Got some bribes there for you. Uh, a couple different levels of patronage. I've substantially simplified the patronage options for you. Made it very, very simple. You can join at... Uh, Whichever level is right for you, and you get access to our Friday Q&A calls. You get access to our Facebook group, etc. So please check out that information at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron for all those details. And hey, get out there and 
Build the rich life and the plan for financial freedom.